Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. We're going to do some Bible teaching time. If you need a copy of God's Word, please put a hand up. We've got awesome volunteers who are going to bring a Bible to you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, please keep it. It is our gift to you. If you know your way around the Bible, we're going to Isaiah 9. In the copies that we're handing out right now, go to page 572. Isaiah 9, starting at verse 1. And while we're getting the Bibles passed out, uh, allow me to talk about giving briefly. We've got windows on the backside of the Pringle building. If you're new, the Pringle, Pastor Pringle is our last pastor. Uh, we named the children's building after him. The backside, the windows, and the wood around, some dry rot, whatever, have seen better days. And the uh, elders and staff were able to bring it up for discussion, figure some things out, get bids, and then take action. The reason they were able to do that is because of faithful and consistent giving from those of you who call Foundation Home. So uh, as I try to say on repeat, thank you for allowing your leaders to do their thing, right? We want to solve window problems as fast as possible so we can get back into the people business, amen? Church is people business. But guess what? Little people hear about Jesus in that building and we don't need it filled with rot, <laughs> right? So, so windows, windows do actually kind of matter. We wanna, we wanna solve that and we wanna get back into the people business telling people how much their creator loves them. So thank you to those of you that give faithfully and, and regularly and, and worship the Lord uh, with your wallets as well as the rest of your person. So, um, okay. It is time for Isaiah 9. Let me turn there. next five weeks, we're in a series called Let Earth Receive Her King. There are a lot of different things we could focus on as it relates to Christmas, a lot of themes, but the one that's been burning in my heart, I don't know about you, but if you're a Christian, there's really only one tragic part of Christmas. Somebody went through another Christmas without receiving her king. That's the reason a brother almost 300 years ago wrote those words. Let earth receive her. He was looking around seeing it too. Earth's king had shown up 1,700 years before he wrote the words and he's, his heart is pleading. Oh, I wish people knew their savior. I wish people knew the God that created them and who has loved them. And uh, we're going to, and this is, this is gonna hurt. Everybody ready? Got your big boy pants on? Here, here's what's going on the next five weeks. We're going to see in Scripture that a favorite American pastime is not allowed. A favorite American pastime is what I call the buffet. We walk into the buffet, we've already paid, and because we've paid, we're entitled to what? Not just everything, but specifically, we're entitled to the rights to pick and choose. We're God. For 15 bucks, I get to be God. And so I take a little bit of Buddha because he had some cool things to say and I put that on my plate. And I take a little bit of Tony Robbins and a little bit of Oprah and Jesus said one or two nice things and I, and I put it all in there 
for my dinner, and I call it my worldview. That is the American way. Because I am ultimately God as long as I get to decide who makes it onto the plate and who doesn't. I'm God. I just would never say that out loud. But I'm God. Little MLK Jr. Oh, so-and-so said something racist? Take him off the plate. I am in charge of the plate at all times. And what we're going to see starting in Isaiah 9 that you don't vote for kings. Kings don't put their names on ballots. Kings don't lick their finger and stick their finger in the wind. And this baby will not be told what to do. This baby is going to grow up and drive his own people with a whip out of the temple because they have turned a house of prayer for all nations into a den of thieves, turning it into a place of money changers and crowding out the Gentiles instead of giving them a place to pray. So, so this, this baby is no pushover. This baby is going to face Roman torture and execution, and he is the Lord of heaven's armies, and he's not a victim to it. He lays down willingly and gives up his life. You can't do that without an unbelievable strength, far beyond anything in our human capacity. Everybody who has any sense of guilt at all, and that's kind of going away in our culture, if we're honest, but if there is any sense of guilt at all about anything I've ever said or done, we like the idea of a God who will save from sin. A Messiah who is Savior only, that sounds great. Would you wash away my sins and let me go to heaven? That would be awesome. But the scriptures never even hint at a God who will come, who will wash away your sin, but make no demands whatsoever. That God is imaginary. What we have is a king. Messiah is both savior and king. I am going to save you, and it's my strength and authority actually that saves you. So, right, we want to take the king part out because we don't want someone telling us what to do. No, just me. Okay, fine. Leave me out there by myself. Leave Pastor Greg out there hanging out to dry. Okay, there are two of us. Great. If you're new, I know this sounds shocking, but man, I'm telling you, you, you cannot take a step toward the kingdom of God without first admitting you want to be God. It, it's hard. It sounds crazy. It is blasphemous. But the control that we seek is really just, hey, God, could you like scoot off the throne? I don't even need you all the way off. Just make room for one cheek and like share the throne with me? That is how we decision make. Jesus, I'll let you make decisions in all areas until I want to sleep with my girlfriend, right? There are some sins where I'm not super tempted. Like, frankly, if somebody offered me black tar heroin later this afternoon in the parking lot, well, you laugh. That's not a temptation for me. For others, that would be a very real temptation, right? Okay, there are some things where we are happy to submit to Christ, and then as soon as it gets hard, we want to be at hometown buffet. I want to pick and choose. And what we're going to investigate for the next five weeks, what we're going to see painfully, but painfully like, like Hilga, putting her elbow into that muscle that really needs to get worked out, it hurts so good. We have some false beliefs that need to get worked out of us. 
namely that control is a good thing. No, the sinless and endless in his love, King of Kings, when he's in control, it's a good thing. And actually, that's what Christmas is about. He comes to subvert sin. He comes to subvert Rome. He takes Caesar and Satan and cuts them off at the knees with a baby. How strong is God that his weak little baby can defeat Satan? This is how strong our God is. His weakness is stronger than the strength of any of his opponents. His weakness is stronger than your sin. His weakness is stronger than my sin. On Jesus' worst day in 33 years, he still never sinned. On his worst day, on my best day, I sinned a thousand times. His weakness can save you, foundation. How much more his strength. So this is where we're going the next five weeks. Today, the sermon is titled Promised as King. We're going to see this thread starting, well, really it starts at Genesis 3, but then that sermon series would take forever. We're going to, from Isaiah 9 to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that Messiah is also king. And it is his authority that makes him able to save. It is his authority that protects us. It's his authority that really kicks Satan in the face. We do not want the fluffy, nice Jesus that we think we want. We don't. We want Jesus to be small enough that we can control him, that we can tell him what to do. And then the bully of Satan or the bully of sin walks into the room and all of a sudden we want Jesus to be big. All of a sudden. And what we're going to find out is even the baby is gargantuan. He was promised as king. We're going to read a text about 800 years before Jesus came. We're going to see that God mercifully and powerfully was not going to send a savior only in the Messiah, but a strong, conquering king. And that's exactly who we need him to be. And if you do not yet know who Jesus is, if you do not yet love him, I'm going to be making the case to you for five weeks. You want him bigger than you think you want him. He's exactly who you want, if you could see it for what it is. So let's talk through the text briefly. And then a couple of points for those who like taking notes. Prophet says, after talking, <laughs> chapter eight is, is rough, the coming Assyrian invasion. Uh, let me remind you, if, if you or I'll tell you maybe for the first time if you don't have a background in church, Prophetic literature is tough because a lot of times you're looking at something that is a very near fulfillment of what the prophet says and a very far fulfillment, and the prophecies very rarely make it clear what's near or far. Um, prophetic literature is not designed for God's people to know exactly what's going on. It is to build faith in God's people. We see it occur, and then we go, oh, that's what God was saying, so that we know my God who says he's in charge of, of history actually is in charge of history. If it was meant to be clear, then there wouldn't be all these endless books at the Christian bookstore of, oh, I know what the future holds. Oh, this is Russia, you know, right here in Revelation 7. All of these arguments back and forth about the details. Our God can create Saturn out of his imagination and with the spoken word. He could tell us exactly through prophetic literature. If he wanted us to know the future, he would tell us. He would have said Vladimir Putin's name if he felt like it. And in fact, we know this. 
Cyrus was named more than 200 years before he was born. He's named in prophetic literature. If God wants to name names and give specific dates and specific details, he can do that. But that's not the point. The point is to show to his people, guys, I've got it. Even the future, I've got it. I'm on my throne. I will fulfill my promises. I am good and I am strong. Trust me. That is the point of prophetic literature. Verse one, after all of this darkness, a coming Assyrian invasion, lots to be afraid of. King Ahaz is, has been two chapters earlier commanded by Isaiah to not pursue earthly alliances. If you've, if you've read through the Old Testament, you've heard this before. You're supposed to be getting on your face and asking God to deliver Jerusalem. But some of these kings instead go, well, I need to call up Egypt for an alliance. In this case, it was Assyria. Assyria is strong. I'll call up Assyria to deal with the Syrian northern tribe alliance. I'm going to rely on my own thinking, my own wits, my own wisdom, and political power. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Okay? That's not just a cute verse. That is what the people of God through kings were doing. Every single king, they would trust in horses and chariots or they would trust in the name of the Lord their God. That was their decision over and over again. They failed so consistently, we needed a leader who would stop trusting in horses and chariots. Is there anything less horsey and less chariot-y than a little baby in the armpit of an empire? Christmas is so far from military power, we can't even, what, huh? He didn't send a bunch of Abram's tanks? Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. So we don't have Jewish ears. He just said the Messiah is going to come essentially to the Gentiles first. That's really offensive. <laughs> To, to racist Jews fighting with the Samaritans, etc. Now, for sure, Jesus' preaching ministry was to the Jews first, and he made it clear. But his hometown was filled with Gentiles. Galilee was filled with Gentiles. And his public ministry of miracles and teaching, I mean, does God do anything by accident? A few weeks after uh, his death and resurrection, Pentecost comes, and now the Holy Spirit has come on, on people who speak a, a multiplicity of languages, and the gospel goes out beyond the Jews. And who, who do you think's ready? Galilee is ready. Galilee is ready. A bunch of non Jews who already saw his miracles, who already, their daughter was raised from the dead. And you think you're this special people of God. We have Moses, we have Abraham. And God's like, yeah, I love everybody. I love everybody. Verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel. Did anybody notice verse three all of a sudden? Who's the you? Where did that come from? You. Man, this smacks of... Uh, Genesis 3, all of a sudden, in Genesis 3, when God is saying to the woman, hey, it's not going to go well for you anymore. You're going to be in conflict with your husband, pain and childbearing. All of a sudden, it says, he, first person, sorry, second person, masculine, singular, he 
will crush the head of the serpent. It comes out of nowhere. You're suffering, you're suffering, you're suffering, he's gonna take care of it. Grammatically, it's a, it's a mess. Like, you, wait, did you just, what did you do in the middle of your thought? Here, it's gonna be bad, but light's going to come. I'm talking to Israel, it seems. You will enlarge the nation of Israel. So he can't be talking to Israel anymore. Israel does not make Israel great again. Israel doesn't do that. They've had so many centuries to prove that they can't. So who's the you? And its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, provision, salvation. We're not gonna starve to death. And like warriors dividing the plunder, a great victory. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burdens from their shoulders. Slavery? God, aren't you being a little bit extreme? Come on now. I thought you were here to give me some good marriage advice. What does God seem to think of the spiritual condition of humanity? Well, it's actually worse than that. He's talking about his people. His people are in total, abject, spiritual darkness, lost and enslaved. But he claims us first, and then he saves us. He speaks to Abraham. He's like, hey, go to a land I will show you. You will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. They didn't lift the burden from their own shoulders? Did I read that right? 21st century Californian, can you save you? Not according to Isaiah. Whoever this you is, he's the one that ends spiritual slavery and breaks the yoke of, of your burden. You can't save you. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the armies of Midian. Now, in case you didn't grow up in church, the defeat of Midian was the original story of the 300 before Sparta got involved. When it looked like God's people couldn't possibly win, you just sent home most of the soldiers. There are only 300 soldiers left against a bazillion Midianites. And Isaiah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, speaking what God told him to speak, he says this, which we're about to get to the famous verse, unto us a, a, a son is given, a child is born, a son is given. This baby is going to look and feel like the battle against Midian. It looks like God's people are outnumbered. It looks like there's no hope. What's with the torches and the lanterns? That's weird. It is gonna look like there is no hope. God will take his people to a place where no one could possibly deliver besides him. Christian, you and I don't like those places, do we? I've lived my entire life, and I'm, I'm guilty, I've said it too. I've lived my entire life in and around the church, and we say, well, all I can do is pray. <laughs> like, what did I just say about the size of my God? 
I've tried all the good ideas. Now I'll have to ask Jesus. I had nine really good plans. The tenth one was to ask the king of the universe. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Guys, we've all done it. So just let go, breathe out. We've all done it. We say that Jesus is the king of the world. He's the center of our universe. And then he is plan number 12 when we tackle our problems. God knows how his people are. If 30 or 40,000 soldiers show up, he goes, eh, that's too many. Send them home. You need to understand by the time this is done, I did this on my own and you were here to watch and to give praise and honor and glory. That's what your job was. I'm gonna go take out a giant with a stone and chop his head off. You're gonna sit there cowering in fear until you see the deeds actually done, which is exactly what we did. Jesus, a bunch of soldiers come with Judas, betrayed with a kiss. We run, one of us naked. We run out of the Garden of Gethsemane and we stay in total fear until what? Later than that, until we can put our fingers in his side. That is the armies of God. The armies of God stay cowering in fear until God on his own vindicates his own name and defeats his enemies. Isaiah says, this baby is gonna look a lot like the slaughter of the Midianite army. Verse five, the boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Is that a cool verse or what? Take your missiles and your tanks and your guns and take them down to the recycling center and see if they can make a soda can out of it. How many Pepsi cans can you get for a tank? Isaiah's saying we'll find out. There is a day where earth will find out, hey, how many children's playgrounds can you make out of that stockpile of missiles? You don't need the missiles anymore. Right? Our minds can't even go there. That's so unthinkable. You don't need all those bullets. Melt them down and make toys out of them. He says it's going to happen. In this text so far, if you were to guess, is humanity going to bring that about or is God going to bring it about? Right? Did you know this verse is on the outside of the building at the United Nations building in New York? <laughs> is that ironic or what? The verse says God's going to do it, but all the nations gather, we're going to find a way to get forward and make peace happen. Sure you will. You literally put scripture verse on your building that says God's going to have to do it, whatever. Okay. Verse six, the famous verse. Four, what is four saying? What does four tell us? It answers the, word, the question why or how. Why is everybody going to rejoice as in the harvest, rejoice as warriors dividing the plunder? Why will war be no more? Why is everyone going to be so excited? For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Those some pretty big titles for a baby. By the way, for those of you that just had the Trinitarian question pop up, Everlasting Father is not saying that the Son is God the Father. It is talking about his heart for his people. We are adopted into the family of God by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus, as a father is supposed to do, he has headship over the church. He takes responsibility for the church. How many of you guys know you were still, just like a child in a grocery store can break things, mom or dad is going to take responsibility even though they didn't knock the groceries over, right? You clean it up, you pay for it if it broke. Jesus took responsibility for the church when he went to the cross. All of her sins he took onto himself. And this is what Isaiah is saying, everlasting father. The father takes responsibility for the kids. He's going to take responsibility for the people of God. Prince of peace. Wow. Mighty God. Again, so in case we were wondering, is Jesus just a really popular philosophy professor at the University of Nazareth? This just 800 years in advance said he's God, leaving no doubt about to his, claim, his claim of who he is when he says, I am. Verse seven, his government and its peace will never end. Hallelujah. Whoa. Has, has world history ever seen that before? No, we've never seen it, but it's going to happen. It's already started. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. Questions, who sits on thrones, prime ministers, presidents, or kings? I'll give you three guesses. Right? I, I keep belaboring this point because we are drenched in democratic thinking. We really think that we get a vote. Have you read the end of the book? Shows up with a white horse and a mean look. And it's at a place where we want Jesus angry because he's about to slaughter Satan's sin and death. And nobody votes. No hanging chads. No one concerned what's happening in Ohio. No recount. I mean, you can count. It was like, okay, I see about five million dead enemies of Christ all wiped out with the proclamation of his own name. You want to recount them? They're dead, right? Revelation says the blood's going to fly, going to be four feet deep at the, end of his, at the end of this battle. I'm putting air quotes around it. A sword comes out of his mouth and it's over. And I'll never sin against him ever again after that moment. And we will never sin against each other ever again. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. His government and its peace will never end. Now, look at this last sentence. This is arguably the most important part of the whole passage. Even though we love the child is born to us, the son is given to us. How is this going to happen? So glad you asked. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. If you've got NIV, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring this about or will make this happen. So, zeal could be misinterpreted. There is a type of zeal that could be military, right? Like a zealot. And that is not the word 
that's being used here, which is why the New Living said passionate commitment. The zeal that is being discussed here, this exact same word, is used in Song of Solomon to talk about the bridegroom and the bride's passionate commitment to each other and exulting in each other, that they want to be married, that they want to be together forever. You guys know that God is the ultimate bridegroom, right? Wooing his people to himself. And he is so passionate for his people that he will save the bride. Back to Hosea. If you haven't studied it, please go do. He did not find, go out and search for this perfect bride who was dressed in white and sinless and spotless. No, he found a mess. And he washed her in his own blood. He went to a cross to make her clean, to make her beautiful. If you guys don't think the gospel can be found in the Old Testament, you haven't read Hosea yet. The zeal of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. That's what hosts means. If your translation says Lord of hosts, hosts doesn't just mean any group of angels. These angels have swords and tattoos. <laughs> the zeal, listen, if the zeal of the worker at 7-Eleven, if we're working on his zeal to make something happen, I hope that all you're asking for is a Slurpee. If the zeal of your mom is gonna make something happen, well, you know, don't mess with mama. You know, she might, she might for sure accomplish something. But if you're gonna talk about turning the world upside down, if you're gonna talk about the forgiveness of sins, Whose zeal do you want to put your hope in? The one who commands the armies of heaven, his passionate commitment is going to make all of this happen. A.K.A., he has the strength, the authority, and the power to deliver on what he just promised. Aren't promises empty and even hateful if they're lies? The biggest promises could be filled with hate if they're just some sick lie. And the passage ends with, oh, no, no, no. The zeal of God himself is going to make this happen. You think that whole baby idea, that sounds far-fetched? The zeal of God himself is going to make this happen. Don't you worry. All right, note takers. Oh, you can't hardly see the underline. I need to choose a different font. That's okay. Jesus was promised to God's people as king, not as savior only not as Savior only. Look back at verse 7. His government, wait, what? He has a government. Does that sound like all he's doing is washing away sin? Again, if he has a government, he can be a prime minister, he could be a president, he could be a king. There are only a few options. And the peace of that government will never end. He will rule. Wait, I thought he was here to like, help clean me up my life a little bit and then leave me alone. Do self-help gurus rule? Isn't the whole purpose of a self-help guru that I spent 20 bucks on the book and I reserve all the rights to ignore what the guru says? I reserved all the rights. I can ignore everything in that book. 
There's no lordship in choosing a rabbi at a distance. Uh, I'll let him be my rabbi. I'll let her be my rabbi if I like the idea. This says he rules with fairness and justice from the throne. Throne. Guys, it could not be more clear that he's a king. That's my point. It just could not be more clear. You couldn't fudge it if you tried. Twist it and bend it. So, you're 16 and you go and get your first job. And you know immediately, I was destined for greater things. For the record, I think everybody's first job should be in customer service. Because the rest of your life you're going to be interacting with people and learn how to treat people nicely. You come in and you say, hey, I heard this is where they hand out paychecks every two weeks. And the manager, after she picks up her jaw off the floor and is done crying, laughing at you, says, hun, um, yeah, so we do hand out paychecks here every two weeks, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, first, you tell me about yourself, and I decide as the manager whether I want to hire you or not. And if I say yes, and if you say yes, I'm your boss, and I tell you what to do. And it doesn't mean I'm going to be mean to you, but I am going to tell you what to do. There's a, a way of doing things here. I'm guessing this is McDonald's. I really don't know. Something. There's a way of doing things here, and I'm going to tell you how to do things. And if you do what I say, you'll still be employed at the end of two weeks and get the paycheck that you walked in here discussing first. Right? Now, this illustration is the exact opposite of the gospel, of course, because we do not work to earn our salvation. Jesus saves us mercifully, unilaterally, and in the same breath claims ownership over you. He says, I purchased you with my blood. I own you now. You go work for the kingdom out of your joy, not to earn the salvation I've already purchased for you. You go do it out of joy now. But for purposes of my illustration, it would be silly in the workplace context to think this is just where they hand out money every two weeks. That would be silly. There is a submission to authority that is presumed in the workplace. If I submit to authority, I keep the boss happy, I have good relationships with my coworkers, I treat the customer well, I'm going to get a paycheck every two weeks and everything's going to go fine, right? Don't wait for an American to do this with their religion, though. No, no, no. Sometimes we just want the benefits, and that's it. Next step, note takers, and this is the big call to action this week. Embrace submission to King Jesus as critical, beautiful, and a daily habit. Those are your three blanks. Critical, beautiful, and daily. Submission might be the least favorite word in our culture, and it might for sure be the least understood. And I wish I had time. I don't. But I'm just going to say this. When you put somebody else completely in charge of your life, there's nothing to be afraid of if they love you perfectly. It's really that simple. You and I are so used to human interactions, we can't imagine perfect love. 
but we're dealing with Jesus here. If his love is perfect, then doing what he says, period, because he says, even when I don't understand it yet, oh boy, do we hold that card. Jesus, I will obey just as soon as it makes sense to me. Ooh, boy, do we love that one. Guys, this is critical. Uh, A training ground for passionate disciples of Jesus Christ, our second vision statement. Training ground, guys, that's military language. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Okay? Kings are by default commander-in-chief. We had to, as a country, we had to state that on paper, just to be clear. But in a monarchy, you don't have to wonder. The king or queen is the head of the military. All of your assignments, everything you go do, is from a benevolent monarch who loves you more than they love themselves. Wow. So submission's not scary in that environment, is it? Okay, again, like I said, I don't have all the time for what I'd like to say. Secondly, and Jesus is still promised to the world as king. You guys know that? 800 years before his first coming, we're reading this promise in Isaiah 9 that a king is promised. He's going to have the strength and authority to push back what is dark in the world and to spiritually save his people from our sin, the condemnation that sin brings. And here we are, 20 centuries after the cross and after the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost, and we still are sitting under promises that a king is coming. The same king who offered mercy the first time, who, heaven help us, is bringing justice the second time. Guys, this is important. It's a little bit scary if you're still an enemy of Jesus. When we looked at the scriptures 2,800 years ago, we really thought Messiah was coming once and he was going to do justice carte blanche the first time he showed up. That's kind of what it looked like. And we were surprised when he shows up with mercy. And you know, there's only one place, really, in the first coming of Christ, there's really only one place that we saw justice. When he says, your sins have to be paid for, I can't pretend like they didn't exist. I'm going to take your sins on to me, and then I'm going to take them to the cross with me. He didn't come in and send a bunch of people to hell, did he? He had every right. We shouted, crucify him. To the, to the source of all love in the cosmos, he showed up and we said, we want you dead. Do you know we're still sitting under the exact same promises that a king is coming? And that's good news. Every dark thing in the evening news right now, guys, your father is angry at those things too. It's not just you. You're not the only one that's heartbroken at the things that are happening in our world. Our father is heartbroken as well. He's just more patient than us. He is more patient with sinners. Who here knows how a millennial spells Santa's name. A-M-A-Z-O-N. That is, that is how the young people spell Santa. So you got a box on your doorstep and you find out from a family member, hey, I checked, I checked the delivery time. It showed up nine o'clock this morning and now it's three, six hours. And you say to yourself, in your pessimism and your woe. It's been six hours. It's been stolen for sure. 
gosh, so frustrating. You go sit down on the couch and you huff and you puff. Your family member is confused. Um, why don't you at least check? Could it have been stolen in the last six hours? Yeah, I suppose. Don't you at least want to look out the window and see? Guys, the same king who was promised and he came 2,000 years ago, he is still inviting every human heart to love him and to worship him and to come into relationship with him. There is no, it's too late for me. Are you in hell? No? Okay, great. Not too late for you. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for any of us because this God is patient and he is kind. I want us to watch a video together of an incredible sermon from the 1970s that's going to remind us of who our king is. is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. 
off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Jesus, make worshipers out of us, please. Make worshipers out of us. Whether it's for the very first time we're seeing your face for who you really are, or if we've been worshiping you for 50 or 60 years or somewhere in between. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for leaving the comfort of heaven where you were treated rightly to the messiness of earth where you were treated horribly. Thank you for your patience with our sin. Thank you for giving us time to turn from our own way of doing things. Jesus, please let us be a part of helping friends and family and neighbors find you this Christmas. There are lights everywhere and snowmen and Santas and songs. And yet in the culture, God, it is always winter, never Christmas. And so we ask you for the miracle of salvation and we ask to get to be a part of it. God, your scripture says that we are the ambassadors that represent you in Citrus Heights and to the ends of the earth. Your scriptures tell us we're the jars of clay. What's inside us is what's beautiful and powerful. We're weak. But this beautiful gospel our city and our world needs. God, we wanna be a part of your kingdom going forward. This ever-expanding peace between God and man that Isaiah told us about. God, we want to be a part of it. God, don't let one man, woman, or child who calls foundation their home, don't let any of us miss out on the chance of sharing the gospel this Christmas. Because you are worthy of us testifying about your goodness. And the need is so great. God, we love you, and we ask that you'd help for our love to grow, that would manifest itself in good works. In the precious name of King Jesus, we prayed. God's people said.